0: Hello, this is John Goldthorpe, your host of the Nature Institute's podcast in Dialogue with Nature. At the Institute, we see science as a participatory process. We work to develop dynamic and flexible thinking that can perceive wholeness and do justice to the rich complexity of the world. We are intent on overcoming the limitations of a mechanistic view of life and, instead, learning from life itself to think in more living ways. We invite you to listen in and join us as we meet both natural phenomena and the nature of human inquiry. This podcast episode, portraying milkweed, is a shortened and edited version of Craig's long article, The Story of an Organism, Common Milkweed, which is on our website, natureinstitute.org, and includes many images of the plant and its parts, as well as research references. In this abbreviated version read by Craig... He begins his story of the milkweed with a quote from the 20th century ecologist Aldo Leopold. All I am saying is that there is
1: also drama in every bush, if you can see it. When enough men, or as we would say today, enough people, know this, we need fear no indifference to the welfare of bushes or birds or soil or trees. We shall then have no need of the word conservation for we shall have the thing itself. So there is drama in every bush. There is drama in every common milkweed. My attempt here is to give an initial portrayal of this plant, its life history and relations to some of the organisms with which its life is bound up. I integrate my own observations with information taken from the scientific literature this literature reflects the countless hours researchers have spent observing common milkweed and its ecology. They design experiments and they interpret their findings. In a whole organism study, such as the one I have done here, my intent is to bring together my own observations with those of many other researchers. I want to paint a coherent, and vivid picture of the plant and its relationships. In Goethe's words, the goal is to portray rather than to explain. To craft such a portrayal, it is necessary to omit many of the hypotheses and interpretations that presently guide most scientific research on the plant. Such hypotheses want to explain why, for example, milkweed has its specific flower form, why it secretes so much nectar, or why it contains in its leaves and stems a sticky, toxic sap. My question is not why, but rather how. I want to see how milkweed is formed, how its parts relate to each other, how it develops, how it relates to its environment. I hope that this portrayal will provide a vivid picture of a remarkable plant, and at the same time exemplify a process that can be applied to other organisms as well. I call upon your imagination to picture along the way. Common milkweed grows in colonies that tend to become more populated each year, unless something in the environment inhibits their exuberant growth. There can be hundreds or thousands of shoots depending on the size of the colony. All these shoots grow from buds in the ground, and they have overwintered. They developed the previous summer on rhizomes, which are underground stems, and remain dormant until the spring. The rhizome grows and branches each year, never showing itself above ground, and forming an extensive network out of which many individual milkweed shoots grow. Those are what we see colony is one large plant. You could compare it with an individual tree, but instead of growing a woody trunk that extends upward and branches outward to create a lasting form, common milkweed branches underground. And some old parts of the rhizomes die away while new ones arise. Botanically speaking, a colony is a clone The individual shoots are genetically identical, having originated from a single seed through vegetative growth. So when I observe what looks like an individual specimen of common milkweed, the shoot I am observing is one branch of a much larger plant, namely the whole colony. One perceptual hint of this larger unity is that milkweed colonies are often quite uniform and they differ from other colonies in characteristic ways. One colony might exhibit shoots that are long, narrow, and distinctly tinged red. Another colony may have more pointed leaves. A third may have especially deep pink colored flowers. Such characteristics are hereditarily anchored and therefore are common to all parts of the colony. I will focus now on one shoot and its development. But we should keep in mind that what I'm describing is occurring with many other shoots within the colony at more or less the same time. As a shoot grows upwards, the first small lance-shaped leaves begin to unfold. The leaves are arranged in an opposite pattern, meaning two leaves emerge at the same height out of the stem opposite each other. The next pair of leaves is offset by about 90 degrees, so that a distinct leaf arrangement emerges. The stem is stout and grows vertically upward. It is significantly thicker than its counterpart in asters or goldenrods, but it is not so dense. While the first pairs of leaves near the ground are small, the leaves soon become broad and long. Milkweed has much bigger leaves than most other plants growing in the roadside old field plant community. The leaves have a short, thick stalk that becomes the distinct midrib of the leaf blade. The midrib branches off into a fairly straight, diagonally ordered side veins that are clearly visible on the leaf underside. The oblong leaves have a smooth, clear margin. Over the course of May and June, here in upstate New York where I live, The shoots grow vigorously, reaching a height ranging from about three to five feet. It surpasses in length the goldenrods that have begun their development a few weeks before the milkweed. As the shoot extends, new leaf pairs unfold, each pair larger than its predecessor. After a shoot has developed about seven to nine pairs of leaves, the first flower buds become visible among the still-unfolding uppermost leaves. The stout little stems that carry the groups of flower buds do not grow out of leaf axils, as the case is in many other flowering plants. Rather, in all but one species of this genus, Asclepius, which is the genus name for the milkweeds, the flowers grow out of the main shoot, slightly to the side of a leaf. Interestingly, Where flowers develop, the leaf arrangement also changes. The leaf pairs are no longer opposite to each other, but shift to an angle of about 120 degrees. Also, and this typifies most flowering plants, the leaves become smaller in the flowering region. The uppermost leaves contract to a size comparable to the first leaves on the shoot, but tend to be much more pointed and elliptical in shape. These changes in vegetative structure point us to the next developmental wave in milkweed's life history, flowering. Among the unfolding upper leaves, you can see small grayish green balls of tightly grouped flower buds, As the buds grow and gradually turn pink, the stout stem that carries them away from the main shoot extends diagonally upward. Each flower bud has, in turn, its own delicate stalk, which also lengthens, and the tight ball becomes a looser and larger sphere. All the individual flower stalks originate at the apex of their common stem. They are an umbel. There can be anywhere from 10 to nearly 200 flowers in one umbel. While in many other umbel-forming plants, for example, in the members of the carrot family, the flowers spread out in a plane. The umbel of the common milkweed maintains its spherical form until the flowers wilt. It has a diameter of maybe three inches. The lowermost umbel on a given shoot opens first, then the one next higher up, and so forth. A shoot has an average of three to six umbels, but some have none and others up to ten. Usually when the lowermost umbel is already wilting, the uppermost one is still in bloom. Milkweed flowers are long-lived in comparison to the flowers of other plants since any given flower can be open for over a week. The whole phase of flowering in a colony lasts around four weeks. Long before you come close enough to a colony to be able to see its flowers, you can smell that the plant is in full bloom. The sweet scent of the nectar-filled flowers carries far. As you approach the colony, you see the rich pink flowering spheres and a multitude of insects crawling and flying around. Honeybees, native bees, such as bumblebees, ants, and a variety of butterflies move from flower to flower, humble to humble, drinking nectar from the blossoms. Along the way, they pollinate the flowers in a strangely intricate process related to the complex anatomy of milkweed flowers. Unlike pollen in most flowers, which is released from the anthers while they are still attached to the flower, in milkweed the pollen remains contained within pollinia, the name for golden packages of pollen, and they are tucked inside a chamber, the so-called stigmatic chamber. Only orchids which are also plants with complex flowers, package their pollen in a similar way and keep it hidden. The only way for pollen to escape its chamber is through insects. And here is how it happens. Above the flower petals is a so-called corona consisting of five cup-like hoods which hold the nectar that attracts so many of the insects on warm, sunny summer days. In between the hoods are little vertical slits. These are openings into the chamber. While insects are moving around on a flower, they sometimes go from hood to hood on a single flower. And one of their legs may slip into a slit. Each slit, as I said, opens into a stigmatic chamber. Above the slit, there is a tiny black knob, the corpusculum. What one doesn't see is that the copusculum has two little arms that extend into the two upper sides of the chamber. Each arm attaches to one of the packages of pollen, and each of those packages contains hundreds of pollen grains. So when an insect pulls its leg upward to free it from the slip, the leg hooks onto the pollen packets and pulls them out of the flower. As it continues its nectar foraging, it often accumulates multiple packets on its legs. They can look like a little chain dangling from its legs. And many of them will simply drop away or be rubbed off. But in some instances, the insect's leg can slip into a flower slit and the pollen detaches. If it happens to be on a flower of another colony, then the pollen packages can release their pollen and fertilization can occur whereby seeds develop. So pollination in this plant is a remarkably intricate and specialized process. One milkweed shoot may have between 300 and 500 flowers, but only a few develop pods with seeds and most of the flowers in an humble wilt, while the occasional fruit shows itself through stalk thickening and white fuzzy swelling at its end, which is the developing pod. While vegetative growth is rapid and expansive, and flowering is a period of bursting productivity, pod development is slow and extended. During July, August, and September, the pods grow, and in their inner cavity, the seeds develop. One interesting feature of pod development is that the stalk that carries the pod twists and curves into a position such that the pod becomes oriented vertically. By October or early November, the pods have reached their full size and maturity. The suture along the convex side of the pod splits open, and the neatly ordered, tightly packaged seeds become visible. It looks as if an artist had laid out the seeds precisely. It's a beautiful sight. With further opening of the pod, the seeds begin to fall and float away. Each of the seeds has lovely silky extensions that allow them to be carried away by a breeze, even though, as seeds go, common milkweed seeds are significantly larger and heavier than those of other old field species. Interestingly, studies have found that although individual shoots with a colony may flower three weeks later than others, the fruits in that one colony release their seeds simultaneously. I mentioned how few pods develop in comparison to the number of flowers in a milkweed shoot or colony but each pod is full of many seeds. One study gives an average of 226. So in that colony, say of a thousand shoots, hundreds of thousands of seeds will spread into the environment. You would, as a result, expect to easily find seedlings of milkweed plants in areas around existing colonies, but you don't. Evidently, milkweed seeds are not prolific germinators. However, since new and young colonies can be observed, at least once in a while, a seed must germinate and subseedlings take hold. As field experiments show, already in the second year, a plant can produce multiple stems, some over a meter apart from each other, showing the vigorous growth of the rhizome underneath the ground. In this sketch of its life history, we can see how up through flowering, common milkweed is characterized by exuberant vitality, vigorous underground rhizome growth, yearly expansion of many long, large leafed shoots, and the production of numerous flowers that secrete copious amounts of nectar. After flowering, milkweed pulls back, and concentrates its vitality into the formation of a relatively small number of pods. But each pod can swell into a large pod, and that pod houses a multitude of seeds that spread into the larger environment, yet only a few of them form new colonies. Now I'd like to speak about how common milkweed is an important part of the life of insects that feed on its nectar, and on its other parts. Observing nectar feeders on common milkweed, one study identified representatives from 15 different orders of insects, and one hummingbird species. Nectar was taken mainly during the day, but also during the night by a variety of nocturnal moths. But these nectar-feeding insects represent only a small minority of the insects and other arthropods that interact with milkweed. A survey in the late 1970s of bugs and beetles found on common milkweed, over a course of 90 days, collected 132 different species of beetles, 18 of which they considered common visitors, they also found 45 species of bugs. Milkweed teams with insect life. For many insects, milkweed is certainly a small and transient part of their habitat, or speaking functionally, a minor part of their ecological niche. They may nibble on the leaves and flower buds or drink some nectar and then move on to other plants. As predators they may like the bug Phymata fasciata hide in the thicket of milkweed stems leaves and flowers waiting for their prey of flies and small wild bees and then there are milkweed specialists that feed almost exclusively on milkweeds so milkweed provides food and a microhabitat for a multitude of organisms its exuberant growth in rhizomes, stems, leaves, flowers, fruits, and seeds that we have seen, allows abundant insect life to orient around it, to be part of it. One striking feature of the common milkweed is that the entire life cycle of a number of insect species is tightly interwoven with it. The most well-known of these is the monarch butterfly, The adult butterfly lays its eggs on the leaves of common milkweed. The larvae live from its leaves and the milky sap the plant contains. And the adults drink from the nectar flower, although adults are not restricted to milkweeds. What is fascinating about the monarch and some of the other milkweed specialists is that they do not just feed on the plants, digest the substances, and then build up their own bodily substances. Rather, they store some of the components of the milkweed sap in their body. When a milkweed stem or leaf is damaged, it exudes a white sap. All you have to do is scratch the stem with your fingernail, and the white sap oozes out and streams down the stem until it gradually hardens. When, for example, a monarch larvae bites into a leaf vein or stalk. The sticky latex containing milky sap seeps out and the larva ingests it. It draws out of the sap a particular group of substances known as cardiac glycosides. And instead of breaking them down or excreting them, it stores them in its tissues. The concentration of these substances in the tissues of a monarch is substantially higher than it is in the tissues of common milkweed. They're concentrating it. Interesting, it is not only the larva that sequesters these substances. They also are retained in the adult, which has gone through the complete metamorphosis from caterpillar to butterfly. So part of the milkweed becomes an essential part of its insect predators. There is a continuity of substance between the two. The milkweed becomes part of the insect. These substances, the cardiac glycosides, are bitter tasting. And in high doses, they can be fatal to an animal. But in nature, this rarely happens since cardiac glycosides cause vomiting in pre-lethal doses. But still, by sequestering toxic cardiac glycosides from milkweed, the predators may be protected from their own predators. This is, in a sense, a paradoxical situation in which a plant is providing protection for its predators, which increases the likelihood that there will be more predators to feed on it. Theoretically, one can think that these specialists might eradicate milkweed. But neither the scientific literature nor my own observations indicate that milkweed populations are significantly harmed by the specialist herbivores that are associated with it. Their lives are intertwined. As I come to the conclusion of this portrayal, let me highlight some of milkweed's salient features. I come back to the exuberant and robust growth, underground the spreading of year to year of the rhizomes, forming a thick network out of which the above ground shoots grow. These thick shoots bring forth large and spreading leaves. All the parts of the plant contain the milky sap, which is continually produced as the plant grows and develops. A marked transformation in substance and form occurs when the flowers develop and enfold in the summer light and warmth. As the stems and leaves are rich in milk sap, so are the flowers rich in sweet nectar. Both the leaves and the flowers attract countless insects. Milkweed is of fundamental importance to the existence of some of these creatures. In the fall, large pods form containing large seeds that spread out into the environment. Milkweed is effusive and yet also specialized. The specialization we see in the way it attracts and repels insects. Think of the sticky, toxic sap that can also be protective. Or the pollination process in which Insects are attracted to the nectar, but may even become injured or trapped by the flower structure. Milkweed invites life, but it also holds back. There is a fascinating tension in this plant. I began this essay with a quote from Aldo Leopold. There is drama in every bush, he said. Leopold could make this bold statement because he had experienced in a clear and deep way the drama in every organism, how each organism is a whole that is active within the larger living context of its environment. I have tried to portray something of the drama of common milkweed. Such a whole organism study leads both into depth and breadth we get nearer to the specific qualities of the plant. We begin to see its uniqueness within all the details and begin to articulate those qualities. Inasmuch as we are able to do just that, a story of the organism's unique way of being emerges. No other plant is the same. Becoming aware of such a story and participating in it cannot leave us cold. We have met a unique quality in the world, and the world would become poorer without it. Holistic knowing creates the basis of a moral relation to the world. For when we have experienced nature in this way, as Leopold said, we need fear no indifference to the welfare of bushes or birds or soil or trees. The story of an organism always leads beyond itself to a larger web of relations with other organisms and elements of the environment. There is no isolation in the living world. We attend closely to the specific qualities, for instance of milkweed, of the monarch butterfly, or of a milkweed beetle, and at the same time become vividly aware of how these qualities intersect and are mutually dependent we begin to gain insight into the truly ecological nature of life. This kind of knowing is anything but abstract, and it is not the kind of fear-arousing knowledge that informs so much of the environmental discussion today. Aldo Leopold captures the essence of the problem and the task when he writes, I quote, I have no hope for conservation born of fear. The 4-H boy who becomes curious about why red pines need more acid than white pines is closer to conservation than he who writes a prize essay on the dangers of timber famine. End quote. It is engaging in concrete phenomena that gives us a relation to them that goes beyond mere information. As Leopold puts it, and I want to conclude with this quotation, we can only be ethical in relation to something we can see, feel, understand, love, or otherwise have faith in.
0: We hope that you've enjoyed this presentation. We'd love to hear what you think. You can write to us at info@natureinstitute.org at with your comments and suggestions. You can become a subscriber and or download a PDF version of all the back issues of In Context, our twice-yearly publication, and many other books, essays, and podcasts on our webpage natureinstitute.org. Thanks for listening.